0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Kreisman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. Today's episode is the first part of a really important ongoing conversation about mental illness we'll be having on the show around stigma and how our personal struggles have a place in the therapy room. The series is called Your Therapist Should Really Talk to Someone. And to get us started, I'm joined today by Dr. Dana Saya. Uh, They have a master's in clinical rehabilitation and mental health counseling from UNC Chapel Hill and a doctorate in rehabilitation counseling and administration from East Carolina University. Go Pirates! I'm from that neck of the woods. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they have served as a member of multiple divisions of the American Counseling Association, including the Association for Counselor Education and Supervision, American Rehabilitation Counseling Association, Counselors for Social Justice, Society for Sexual, Affectional, Intersex, and Gender Expansive Identities. They're currently a member of Pitt County, North Carolina's Board of Directors for the National Alliance of Mental Illness, also known as NAMI. Dr. Sia has been a certified peer support specialist since 2015 and has volunteered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention since 2012 and NAMI since 2016. On a more personal note, they expressed symptoms of anxiety at age four and were later diagnosed with severe and persistent mental illness, which has deeply informed their clinical practice and advocacy work. They are currently the owner of Panacea Mental Wellness, a virtual practice Houston, in Eastern North Carolina, and teach in the Department of Addictions and Rehabilitation Studies at East Carolina University. Welcome, Dana.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad to be here.
0: I'm super excited about this conversation in particular. Um, so ordinarily, I like to orient listeners to key concepts and ideas and definitions and all that uh, before we jump into the more personal end of things. But today, it feels really important to name that we really can't separate content from context. So could we start by just hearing a little bit about your journey to becoming a mental health professional and peer support specialist? Maybe tell us about some key points that led you to this place.
1: Yeah, I think the, the long and the short story maybe <laughs> is my own experience with mental health is what led me here in the first place. Um, I've have noted in charts since age four, uh, symptoms of anxiety, experienced depression into teens, and just kind of as my mental health has evolved over the years, uh, and figuring out how that's overlapped with the professional and personal side. But really, I think the key turning point for me, so to give you some context, I have a, a bachelor's in business administration, and was an insurance agent for five years. And during that time, I lost my dad to suicide and realized that was where my passion was, was in mental health and suicide prevention. So I was actually in a support group as a member and someone else mentioned about peer support specialists, which I had never heard of. Um, and they said, you'd be great at this and researched what the process was, went through that process to become certified as a peer support specialist in North Carolina I did a lot of primarily volunteer work, honestly, as a peer support specialist, and then realized insurance wasn't where I was at. (laughs) I wasn't helping folks the way I wanted to be. And if I wanted to do this and get paid a living wage, I needed to take it to the next step, which was getting my master's. And so in kind of a weird turn of events, uh, I got turned down by several programs for their master's. And there was only one still accepting applications and I was determined to get into a master's program. And that was UNC Chapel Hill, who thankfully knew what a peer support specialist was. Um, and I think that made a difference in my application there. Um, so during my time, uh, I realized why Clients don't always have the best experience with practitioners. Um, I realized why from a consumer perspective, we weren't always getting the support we really deserved and needed. Um, And that's because of the teaching of the practice of counseling. And so learning that during my master's really drove me to take, uh, again, another big leap into getting my doctorate so that I could turn around and teach the upcoming counselors and give them more of that lived expertise on where consumers are coming from and for them to also tap into their own lived expertise as consumers because often folks who are in therapy have had some sort of experience um, hopefully with a therapist and it just kind of came full circle for me. So starting as a consumer, moving into a peer support role, realizing that wasn't enough for me personally, um, getting my master's and realizing how I could improve the field, getting my doctorate, and now I'm here um, teaching students, I'm running my own practice, uh, and I just really enjoy the work that I'm doing and the level of services I'm able to provide.
0: Wow. Um I'm just struck by sort of like your clarity of purpose. You know, it sounds like you really just honed in on exactly what's going to jive with your values Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: the impact you wanted to have. I'm also curious to hear about the intersection of diagnosis and symptoms and professional development. I guess specifically, like, what did you feel was available to you personally, professionally? Uh, as you're also dealing with a a major loss, as you know, you're trying to keep yourself well. Uh, Did you feel it all, I guess, on the outside at any point during your professional development?
1: Yeah, I think there's a a mix of kind of how the personal and professional came together and at times when maybe it was at odds um, and other times when it flowed really well. So as a As I was going into my master's, I was still working as a peer support specialist. Uh, And a lot of that work actually influenced the work I do on the clinical level as a counselor because I got the immediate feedback from folks who were my peers and were telling me what wasn't, wasn't, what was and was not working for them. And figuring out for me, how do I actually put that into place as I move into that role of practitioner? Um, and I none of, none of the peers I worked with, so the folks that were, I guess, technically at that point, my clients, and none of the peers that were also peer support specialists ever pushed back on me moving into the field and becoming a practitioner. They encouraged that. They thought that it was great that we needed more consumers as practitioners. Once I got into my program, again, they knew that I was coming from a consumer background. There were still times where it felt like my personal and professional were at odds with each other. Um, I was very open about my experience as a consumer, especially with my classmates and a lot of the interprofessional activities that I did. And I tried to cultivate spaces where we could openly talk about mental health Um, I know at one point I put myself out there and said, look, I've had thoughts of suicide. Let's have an honest conversation about this. Um, If you're going to be working with clients with thoughts of suicide, I'd rather you get those awkward, inappropriate questions out of the way with me than for you to have that with a client. Uh, I've had some of my colleagues from that mental health program to say, you know, they were really involved in it, um, but maybe they weren't so comfortable sharing their own personal experience Or they felt like, oh, that's not me. I've never experienced that. I'm not going to work with clients with that. Um, And they've come back to say like, "Uh, yeah, you do end up working with clients with thoughts of suicide. Um, I would venture to say that most of us at some point have had thoughts of suicide in one way or another. And that's where the professional and the personal kind of, again, could come at odds when I would get pushback for especially that particular event where I wanted specifically to talk about folks with thoughts of suicide and the pushback on like, is this an appropriate event? Will people be interested? I mean, we ended up having like a standing room in the back because there were people who wanted to have this conversation and felt like they couldn't. Um, I'm sure everybody remembers when you had to do the group therapy class and it became that awkward moment where you started to lead (laughs) the actual activities and you have to be we don't, I guess you don't have to be right. You uh, sometimes may end up being more open in some of those classes than you would if you were in maybe a math or a history program. And the opportunity that students had, you know, by that point, what we're in our third Uh, semester or so. We've gotten to know each other better. They've heard my story over and over again, and they start to open up about their stories as well. So I saw, even though the faculty wasn't always on board, and by faculty, I mean not just with my program, just across Allied Health, unfortunately, um, the students started to get on board with that, recognizing how their personal experiences influences what they're going to be doing in the field. So, I hope that there's more opportunities to talk about that, but I don't think right now most of our counselor educators are starting that from a personal standpoint of I've been to counseling, or even like it's okay to go to counseling. Um, It's okay to have mental health stuff because everyone has mental health. Um, I hope we're coming to a better place with that, but that's part of what I really try to do as a counselor educator is bring in what are your personal experiences? Um, How can you use that to better your practice? That was a long winded answer to your short question, but.
0: (laughs) And I have so many spinoff questions. So thank you. (laughs) That was amazing. Uh, I mean, I feel like you're naming something that has always felt like a dissonance, the elephant in the room, you know, which is this unspoken paradox in the mental health field, right? That it's expected that you become a counselor or a therapist because someone in your close circle has struggled, right? But it's never, to me and my training programs felt okay to name that you have your own struggles, (laughs) which is so weird because like what other profession would you have some sense of shame or secrecy around having engaged as a consumer, right? Like if you're training to be a mechanic, No one's going to be embarrassed to say, Yeah, I had to take my car to a mechanic one time and get an oil change. Like, it's not a
1: secret. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think what you're speaking to is both directly and indirectly set up as an expectation from faculty and the larger counseling profession field. Because if you were to ask someone directly and say, Are you okay if counselors bring their own personal stuff into their practice, and their improvement as a professional, the person would jump on it and be like, yes, absolutely. However, there's no front-end encouragement to have folks share what they've gone through and how that's affecting what they're doing now. So I think if you ask directly, folks are going to say, yeah, absolutely, we're open to that. But indirectly, the message we're hearing is, don't talk about it.
0: Right, because self-disclosure is really just... Uh, an avenue for counter-transference, right? Like there's no model for effective self-disclosure. Yeah, gosh, that feels incredibly relevant. That just captures so much of my my own personal experience in my master's program. So I I had my first depressive episode toward the end of my master's program. And I remember feeling like I can't let any of these people know. And it never occurred to me that that was really messed up. You know, because I just felt like I had so much to manage. I didn't really have space to think about it from a systems
1: perspective. And they probably never told you that directly, but it was those indirect messages you were getting that said, oh, I can't talk about this.
0: What what I also heard as you were describing some of your path into this work is what sounds like some real boldness or some real uh, impactful healing just to have geared yourself toward things that were so deeply personal, right? So to have lost your dad to suicide and to work specifically with folks who are having suicidal thoughts. Um, were there key points that you think really helped you to integrate those experience to make it possible for you to help folks who are going through the same sorts of things? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, first, I'll say I do have a nickname as Dr. DGAF. So that kind of wraps up how I approach life. Um, That's probably it in a phrase. I came into that as a peer support specialist. We are encouraged to talk about our own experiences and bring that into our work with clients. And so I was already coming from that perspective and there was no way I was going backwards this is similar to me as a queer person. Like, I've already come out. I'm not going backwards just because someone doesn't want me to be out or whatever. So the same was true with my mental health. I I mean, if you Googled my name, you're going to find it. It's not like there was anything to hide. I, that was so core to my identity. I did a lot of trainings and trainings on especially suicide, like intervention and prevention, as well as postvention. So for survivors of suicide loss, I'm going to say I'm a survivor of suicide loss. I'm going to talk about my connection to the cause. Why am I so passionate about this? It was never a question to me to not talk about it. So to get the reaction from folks of like, oh, like, oh, you're talking about your experience. I mean, maybe that was. I, that was some surprise for me, like, why aren't we talking about this? Um, but it helped to click the pieces in place. It's like, OK, this is why I want to become an educator, because it's. It's just, un, if it's unheard of, like, I know this is across the board, across the whole field, and this is why we're not connecting with clients, because we're not allowing ourselves to connect with our own personal experiences. And it doesn't have to be, I have SPMI and here's what helped me. It, it doesn't have to be like that. There are ways, to your point, to appropriately use self-disclosure Or at the very least, pull from our own experiences when working with clients. And if we don't do that, we're missing that human connection. So to me, it was it was there was no question I was going to bring it in. That's who I was. That's where I came from. And I was just going to continue that. And it probably pushed me to do it even more so realizing that others weren't being open about their own experiences. Now, were they coming to me separately and telling me their experiences? Absolutely. I am the secret keeper where, where can we find the room, though, for folks to get comfortable with sharing that with others? And I think there is this fear of retaliation, like, if I'm open about this, I'm not going to get that letter of recommendation. I'm thinking about our own state board. You have to have at least one letter from a currently licensed counselor. If you're going through your master's program and you only have access to a few of those who are willing and able to write that review, you can't get your license unless one of them is good enough for you to move forward in the process. And if you're afraid of being open about your struggles because they won't write you a letter, then you're again. That's it's not directly being stated; it's indirectly being just assumed because no one's directly saying that it's okay to talk about it. And I didn't have that fear because again, I had this background of, you know, I worked with AFSP. I worked with NAMI. I worked as a peer support specialist. I had other people that I could get letters of recommendation from. I didn't, I wasn't beholden to any particular person or persons. And that was my own like privilege in that situation that I was more comfortable and able to be open with it because I had absolutely no fear of retaliation. So I think that unspoken concern that folks have is what keeps them from speaking up.
0: I'm thinking too, I mean, as you mentioned, th- this requirement to have a a recommendation letter, um, also just about the sort of ethical yes or no boxes, you know, have you ever had Uh, a mental impairment that could get in your, in the way of your practice is one of the questions is asked every, every renewal period. And I mean, again, that dissonance of, I mean, I have a diagnosis, diagnoses, and I've never known it to impair me, but just the, just how unsettling to confidence and competence and efficacy uh, that sort of you know, dual message that mixed message can be mm-hmm.
1: exactly like there's this cut off, and you have to decide, Can you appropriately do this? And if you say yes, that there's some reason you can't do it, it are you just out? Are you just that's it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is not so cut and dry. I mean, there are so many nuances to that. I know we. Uh, talked a little bit about like recovery, relapses. I mean, if you look at the definition from SAMHSA, it includes that there are going to be relapses. It's just known. And for me, I see that as an opportunity to build back stronger each time because you're learning something from that. But if we scare people into not even acknowledging what they have going on in the first place, how are they ever going to have the opportunity to rebound from the, what could be seen as an inevitable relapse. I mean, who, for many people, the pandemic was a huge trauma and set people back in maybe whatever ways that they were improving their wellness. For some folks, it was great. Like for me, I love being at home. (laughs) Like for me, it was, this is awesome. This This is great. And for some folks, it just, it was not. And it really wrecked them. And nobody anticipated that. We can't know every single thing that's going to come up in our lives and potentially cause us to have some sort of relapse. Um, it's It's, I don't know, to your point, like who's making these decisions? Why are they making this particular decision? And who's it keeping out because they're afraid to answer questions honestly?
0: Yeah, that gatekeeping piece feels just so important here especially as you're naming, coming from the peer support world, recognizing that there's so much that that uh, philosophy has to offer as a function of shared experience, but that model is not present in clinical mental health.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: I wonder if we can dig in a little bit more. You've already named that a, a big difference between peer support and mental health counseling is you know self-disclosure. Um, What are some other key differences between those two roles?
1: I think that that is what it comes down to. It's the human connection. As a peer support specialist, clients know that you've been through something. They may not know specifically what you've been through. They know you've been through something. And there is a bit of a give and take in that relationship. Now, there's still the boundaries to be maintained. Um, Even though it's called peer, you don't become friends with your clients. It's just on a different level. And I think counseling is missing that. We're missing that human connection. We are told we're the expert. We're told that we need to use evidence-based treatments. We're shown how to make diagnoses based on really... I won't even get on a DSM soapbox based on a, a book truly that is focused on deficits. That's what we're taught. We're taught to ignore our own emotions. We're taught to push back any feelings that we have. I mean, there is, there have been a lot of improvements in our field, Yet we still come from this background of having a poker face, of not showing our emotions, of not sharing our experiences. And when we're set up that way, we're set up to lose the, uh, the human connection piece that really allows us to work with, collaborate with, be transparent with clients. That's all they want. They want to work with us as clinicians. Some folks do want us to tell them what to do. <laughs> that's totally fair. At what point in our lives haven't we felt that way? Just tell me what to do so I can just do it and be over with it. And at the same time, that's what they're already getting from their family and friends like, oh, you should leave that relationship. You should leave that job. Uh, you should do this. You should do that. The amount of times I've had clients note that what they appreciate with me is that it's transparent. We talk about everything. We talk about the money. We talk about the scheduling. We talk about all the wild, no surprises stuff that we have to sign now. And I'm open about that. I'm like, I know that this is ridiculous, and I want to let you know why this is here and what this is and why you have to sign it. Don't just send them documents and expect them to just sign it, like get on with them on their level and talk to them about what it is. Be transparent about the process and then be collaborative in the assessment. I, When I make diagnoses, which are primarily for some sort of insurance benefit or accommodations reason, I'm going to work with the client and say, does this match your experience? This is what I'm hearing. Does this match your experience? Because otherwise, I've I've been in therapy for decades at this point. And for a while, I had no idea that anyone was even giving me a diagnosis. I had no idea that notes were being taken on my sessions. And again, that's that human connection. Why are we afraid of telling clients that? This is just like
0: an ongoing question for me, kind of related to the work that I do with supervisees to try to bridge that gap, but it feels kind of like the blind leading the blind in terms of what is appropriate self-disclosure. you know, I've come up with a couple of what I feel like are hacks and (laughs) one of them being, okay, if you have an aspect of your personal experience, but you still have judgment or shame or guilt around it is probably too fresh to share. But if you have integrated it, you can feel compassion and warmth for yourself, then it might serve the person you're working with if there's some overlap or connection. I'm curious about, especially if there are things that you've learned in the peer support space or just in your career, do you have tips for knowing when the deeper human connection Is appropriate or how to integrate that effectively without it crossing what are still, yes, some necessary lines.
1: Let me start with what not to do and then I'll move into what to do. Perfect. When a client asks you a question, a straight up question, don't respond to it with another question. Why is that important for you to know? Oh, I hate that.
0: That's like a go to,
1: uh, like, Like, cop out. Oh, for sure. Like, who cares? They've asked the question. It may mean nothing. I think what to do is to bring it back to the client. If at the end of you saying whatever your disclosure is, you haven't brought it back to the client, do it real quick. That's the key. You get to choose how much or how little you share about yourself as long as in the end it turns back to the client. Mm. And there's ways to use self-disclosure without even saying I or my experience to say, I've heard of folks who have said that journaling is really helpful. I've heard folks who've been worried about going to a psychiatrist, found the right medication and were like, heck yes, this is great. I didn't have to share that those were my experiences, which actually I don't like journaling. (laughs) It's just an example I think a lot of people go to. The one example that I always give students on self-disclosure, because this is a question that comes up a lot. How do you use self-disclosure? Did I screw that up? Did I say too much? If you kept talking on and on about yourself, yeah, you probably did. All right. Well, let's learn from it and move on. <laughs> uh, you know, go back to your client. Here's, here's another great example. This is my favorite self-disclosure. You go back to the client. You've had your session. You go back to him the next session and you say, you know what? I've been thinking about the last time we met. And I realized I went on and on about myself. I just, I first want to apologize for that. And a second, just want to check in with you and see how that came home for you. Like, how are you feeling about that? Let clients know. We think about them in between sessions. Let them know that's okay. And I think it really pulls in important pieces. If your mind's still stuck on it, there's maybe two. I really like that one. The other one that I've said is I was sitting, this was back in person and a client and I were sitting there and they saw a tattoo on my foot and they said, oh, what does your tattoo mean? And I just literally gave them the, like, what is three letters. So it stands for something, trust your journey. I didn't give them the background of why I got the tattoo or where I first learned about that tattoo or who did it and my experience getting tattoo. I just said, this is what it stands for. And I said, you know what? That kind of sounds like what you're going through. That's how you turn it back to the client. And it's not by saying, why is this important to you? Or why did you ask this question? That's not how you turn it back to the client. (laughs) The -hmm. client's not like that. (laughs) It's really how do we turn it back into what their experience is right here and right now? If they ask you a question you don't feel comfortable sharing the answer to, tell them you don't feel comfortable sharing the answer to that. That's okay, too. That in and of itself is self-disclosure. You mentioned earlier, we're not taught how to do self-disclosure. Because we're not taught how to do self-disclosure, we are indirectly being told, don't use self-disclosure, which also means the person teaching us didn't know how to use self-disclosure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there are, yes, that human area, we are bringing our experiences into this space. At the end of your self-disclosure, if you bring it back to the client and what they're going through, you've done your job. So
0: useful and so concrete. Um, There was some thought that I was having as you were talking about making a repair.
1: I love talking about repairs and ruptures in the counseling relationship Because when I work, especially with practicum students, they're headed into the field for the first time, and what do they say their biggest fear is? Screwing up. And I tell them, that's great, you should screw up, because that's an opportunity to rebuild that clinical relationship stronger. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when we work out, our muscles hurt because they are literally tearing and rebuilding. So ruptures in our therapeutic relationships are going to hurt us and clients. And if we can get through that and get to the other side and repair that rupture, that relationship is actually going to be stronger. We as clinicians are going to have learned, oh, I screwed up. Let's not do that again. And clients are going to learn I'm working with a human. Mm -hmm. I'm working with someone who is willing and able to improve themselves to better help me
0: and willing to humble themselves to name a mistake, to preserve the relationship. You know, I mean, how validating is that to know that you're worth the discomfort of making the repair?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that power differential that we have with clients as clinicians is what is really creating this awkwardness with us and clients. And if we can come from a collaborative, human shared experience, it's going to change how we work with clients. And it's not going to be on the level of a peer support specialist. It's going to be on a different level because we do have inherent power dynamics we can't get rid of. We have the power to make a diagnosis that we can't get rid of that. But how do we get transparent about that process?
0: I'm so curious to get like the cliff notes version of your professional disclosure statement or like <laughs> informed consent. Like, How do you orient clients? to this approach? Because I think especially if people have come from other counselors, which most people that I work with have, they have certain assumptions and expectations of this very disconnected power differential. So how do you orient clients to this more equal playing field?
1: The very first sentence in my professional disclosure statement is, as a consumer of mental health services, I understand how important the therapeutic relationship can be.
0: And also knowing that not everybody reads the documentation. <laughs> have you had clients who commented on that or, or named that that impacted them?
1: Not the professional disclosure statement specifically, rather what they have found when they found me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What they read on my directory profile or on the website, that's what they connected with. Again, I share, you know, my own background of living with mental illnesses. It's right there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I share that I actively work to decrease power imbalances in all of my relationships as a peer support specialist, as a clinician, as a supervisor, as an educator, as a researcher. In all of these areas, I am decreasing the power differential that is there. That is like the first statement that's on my profiles for the most part. They get an about me. They get information that I am a survivor of suicide loss.
0: Which again is, you know, we know it's about the relationship, but we're training people to be um, intervening.
1: Mm -hmm. Intervening Mm -hmm. and saving. And And, saving. Ooh. Yeah. And that's another thing that I'll tell students. I'm like, your clients got to this point without you. They're they'll be OK without you. And they make it
0: the all the other six days of the week and 23 hours and 10 minutes
1: without and you. That's, and that's what I tell clients. I say, look, we have one hour together once a week, once every other week, once a month, whatever it might be. You're you live in your life the whole rest of that other time. So what do you want to do during that time?
0: Okay, so you shared a really great review on peer support and mental health from 2020, and I'll include the link in the show notes. And it reads, successful transitioning from the patient to the peer support role involves fundamental functional shifts achieved through overcoming multiple barriers at the personal health system and societal levels. So to take this a little bit, into other ecological spheres of experience. What barriers have you faced maybe at this personal health system, societal level that you've either overcome or that you still feel stuck with?
1: And I think this is what makes a difference between sometimes a peer support specialist and a clinician because peer support specialists are entrusted to work with clients, to figure out how to overcome those barriers so they can live their best lives. And for me, what I've experienced is some shitty therapists, some difficulty paying the bills of, (laughs) oh my gosh, I remember. So after my dad died, this was uh, November, 2011, he died from suicide. And I hadn't been in therapy for about a year cuz I I was in therapy in college, had graduated 2010, and then 2011 he dies and I'm like I got to get back in therapy. So I don't even know how I found this therapist. I'm pretty it was definitely community mental health probably offered by the local county or something. I don't know. And My insurance wasn't that great. I had just started my first full-time job with benefits um, and my insurance wasn't that great. I didn't know it at the time. And so I got this therapist and imagine the building is, I mean, essentially like public service buildings, (laughs) you've got kind of concrete blocks and rickety old elevators and, your therapist's room happens to back up against a one-stall bathroom so you can hear people going to the bathroom while you're in the session. The therapist herself, I realized kind of in hindsight, was probably kind of new to the field maybe mm-hmm. and didn't really know what to do with me because I'm coming in with already years have been having been in therapy, having found what I felt was a good place, and then having my life shook to its core not to mention the, like, two-month wait I had to go through. And this is in 2011, 2012. Wow. The two-month wait I had to go to, through to get to actually see her. And I don't remember, like, anything from those sessions except that she gave me a resource for the Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network. And they had a group for survivors of suicide loss. And I got way more out of that group than I ever did going to that individual therapist. And that speaks to the power of peer support specialists. Even if you're not a certified peer support specialist, which I highly recommend, even just peer workers that were in that group and able to hold the space that the therapist wasn't. Because again, they brought that human connection. And I fully believe even folks who haven't lost someone to suicide can work really well with survivors of suicide loss. You don't have to have that connection. You've got to have some connection to the humanity piece of it though. And I think that's what I found in that group that I wasn't getting out of therapy. My copays were 10%. The sessions were $130. So I was paying $13 and then I got hit with a th- several thousand dollar bill because I hadn't met my deductible yet. I met my deductible just in individual therapy sessions. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking $13, I can swing this, this is fine. And then I get hit with 130 times however many sessions I had been to. That was That was a rough, rude awakening for sure and i don't i don't blame the therapists at all for any of the money conversations we're having i blame the people that are benefiting from charging the rates these ways and making the reimbursements in the ways they do the insurance companies and third party payers that's where the problem is mhm yeah we've got mental health parity and we've had laws pass But we all know that that's, it's not really happening.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's not enough. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, those are the barriers that I, as a college graduate with a full-time job and health insurance, was facing a two-month wait to see a therapist that I had to pay thousands of dollars to see before I can meet my deductible. I'm pretty sure I just up and quit Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I found the group and I was like, yes, these are my people. I, You know, I'm having to take sick time from work to go see this person every week. And my boss is like, why are you out so much? Again, new grad, first full-time job, you kind of want to appease your boss. Mm-hmm. And you probably also don't
0: want to disclose to your boss that it's because you're seeking therapy when you're new to a job. And there's all sorts of stigma about mental health and illness.
1: And I probably did tell him <laughs> We'll be honest. (laughs) I mean, I was really honest about the way that my dad died and the effect that it had on the family and everything. And so I was probably honest with him. Um, I don't know for sure. I can't remember, but I'm sure I probably was. I probably let him know what was going on. Imagine folks who don't have all the resources that I did. Um, You know, in college, it was great. It was included in your student fees. I had an excellent connection. With my college counselor. I also had access to any number of groups on any number of topics. I mean, that counseling center was like the setup. There was no diagnosis to be made unless I wanted to go for medication, which at that time I didn't. And I went from that into the rude awakening of community mental health. So, another experience I had, I have a therapist that I've been seeing for years and I, at one point she was covered under my insurance when I was a a PhD student. And then when I left that plan, I got on my spouse's plan and their plan covered her, but then the plan changed and she was no longer covered. So I was paying out of pocket. So I'm trying to walk the walk, you know, that I'm, I'm talking the talk and walking the walk and realizing like, you know, What's the importance of paying out of pocket for the support you can get? That's not to say that offering insurance isn't great. Um, That's going to work for some practices. It's not going to work for me because I am, I'm disabled. I've got, I can't manage 40 people a week. Um, If I get 15, that's pushing it. There's no way for me that I could calculate a living wage with some of the insurances. And it's not just about taking insurance and what they will reimburse. It's also the process you have to go through to get reimbursed or to get paid by them as a clinician. And I knew that there, I don't have that stamina. I don't have that ability to do that. And being self-pay affords me a lot of flexibility with clients that using insurance would not. So for Mm -hmm. me, that works. That's not going to work for everybody. And I recognize that again it comes back to the insurance companies the third party payers the people who are getting paid the big bucks to create and maintain the system that we have right now
0: yeah i'm i'm connecting just with having a practice that is primarily insurance based how for one how difficult it is to get accurate estimates of benefits. So I I tell people, you know, we got like a 60-40 kind of chance of telling you accurately what you're going to owe. And I mean, I try to educate people. Our staff tries to educate people that, and it probably sounds like passing the buck, but we're doing the best we can within a system that is really not geared toward mental health. But that doesn't prevent the person who just like in your situation thought they were going to owe 10% comes out needing to pay $5,000 first from then feeling like mental health has failed them. It's not just that the insurance companies have put them in a bad position. It's a sense that the mental health field is actually not going to help me.
1: Right. And honestly, the insurances are going to be way more responsive when their patients reach out than when the clinicians reach out. You've got a patient advocate, and this is important to know for anybody using mental health benefits, you have patient advocates who can help you find and maintain the services that you have. Um, you have people who are not just your representative or whatever. You have advocates that you can get in touch with provided by your insurance companies to help you navigate the system that they created, ironically. hmm And so I I agree. I encourage folks to reach out to their own insurance because they're going to get more of an accurate answer than I ever would if I reached out.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned the patient advocate piece um, because I don't think that is a highly utilized service at all. And I think it segues into... A question of how can people get connected to peer support? So if we're thinking we're talking about the financial models and reimbursement models around counseling and therapy, how does someone gain access to peer support? Who's paying for it? Uh, What are the conditions that make someone eligible? Say more about how
1: how that works at the base level. Everyone should be able to have access to a peer support specialist. How it gets paid is a different thing. There, there's, as always, there's arguments about reimbursement for peer support specialists and when it's going to be covered and not. And so for the most part, if we're talking about someone not having to pay at all because they've got some sort of service that is paying for peer support specialists, um, this might be on the assertive community treatment team's um, this might be in we've got uh, the community model where it's it's a mixture of like clinicians, peer support specialists and folks with SBMI who come in and there's a variety of things that they're doing and learning throughout the day. Um, and it's provided there uh, sometimes like your local Department of Health and Human Services might offer that in conjunction, like at a hospital Um, or just the local services. And then there's organizations who will provide it either for paid, low cost, no fee um, that you can access. So Promise Resource Network in Charlotte, North Carolina is a huge provider of peer support services. And another one that I used to work for was called Support Group Central. It's now called Hey Peers. Everything they do is virtual and is also based out of organizations that are already providing a peer support model for services. And Hey Peers is basically connecting the people who need the services with the people who are providing the services. So I hope to incorporate peer support specialists into my clinic. Uh, I think I recommend it often when I'm doing assessments or talking about accommodations or additional supports for folks. And I don't always have great resources of where they can go to find it because typically you have to be plugged into some sort of like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, again, like DHHS. You already have to be plugged into something that's providing peer support work unless you're finding these standalone organizations that are providing it like PRN and Hey Peers. That being said, there are some organizations and I applied for jobs with jobs with them and almost worked for them who are taking advantage of peer support specialist reimbursement to use peers, peer support workers as like chauffeurs to drive people in between appointments. Mm -hmm. Um, So you got to be careful too, when you're looking at where, is your peer support services like who's providing it? Um, how are they providing it? In what way are you getting these services? And yeah, just being careful about that. But on a whole, we can do a lot better to support, employ, and really utilize what peer support specialists can bring to the mental health field as a whole.
0: So you're naming here that a lot of people, if they're going to access peer support, it's going to be through likely some sort of state or federal funded programming, you know, or maybe hospitalization. So suggesting that these are folks who either are pretty ill or who have been ill for a while. So because I think it just takes a mind bogglingly, like a long amount of time for folks to get connected with services that they need. So for folks who are maybe in outpatient settings, uh, maybe private practice settings, what would be some indicators that a client might be appropriate for peer support services? Mm -hmm.
1: They want to navigate local resources and they want someone who can talk to them on a level that isn't like the professional knowing the right way to do things that it really is a conversation about what their options are. Peer support can be a really good kind of first step before counseling or even before seeing like a psychiatrist and getting medication because those folks, like they have no, there's no reason why they're going to push any one particular way or another because as peer support specialists, part of our ethics is to not push one route of mental wellness that it really is person-centered. And that can be a great connection if somebody's not ready to do the deep dive that counseling may require or to do the awful trial and error of psychiatric medications. A peer support specialist is going to give them just honesty about what the process is like and how they navigated it. And they're going to give those resources to the client that they might not otherwise get.
0: So let's say I refer someone to one of these agencies for peer support. Am I, is the client going to hit walls in terms of they haven't had a specific diagnosis for long enough or they haven't had enough hospitalizations or are there those sorts of walls in the peer support world? Like I know there are in in the managed care world.
1: It could be. And it's going to depend upon who's providing the services essentially, um, who's paying for it really. Uh, Again, the more of a a self-pay model that you have, the more flexibility you have in who you can work with. So it's, I think, to your point, if you're going to be referring out for peer support specialist work, finding out who the agencies are, what sort of services they provide, who's eligible for their services, we've got folks out there, peer support specialists out there who can and are ready to provide this type of support. And because of the ironic barriers that they faced in receiving their own support, that they're now finding the barriers in trying to provide that type of support. So it's we've got a lot of work to do to improve just the knowledge of who peer support specialists are, what the certification process is, and what their role is within the larger mental health field.
0: Switching gears a little bit, kind of going back to um, what we were talking about in terms of mental health counseling programs, really not preparing people for self-disclosure. I'm reflecting just on my own experiences in internship and right after my master's program, both of which were focused on working with folks with SPMI. Uh, But as I think about the master's programs that I've taught in or supervised uh, in, there's little to no emphasis on working with folks with severe and persistent mental illness. I mean, we talk about Gestalt, but we don't talk about wellness recovery action plans. We talk about CBT, but not CBT for psychosis. Um, So I know it's different in the rehab counseling programs. There is more of an emphasis, but in clinical mental health, what do you think could be done differently to orient new counselors to severe and persistent mental illness, just to increase the willingness, decrease the stigma what's missing from clinical mental health programs?
1: I sound like a broken record. The human connection.
0: <laughs> it is what it Let, is.
1: Yeah. Let's bring in folks with SPMI and have them talk to our classes. Let's go to facilities providing Additional supports to folks with SVMI to see what it looks like. That's we're missing. We're gosh, we talk about people, we don't talk to people.
0: <laughs> Ooh, bumper stick right there. Dang, yeah.
1: During our programs, everything is a book until we are kicked out into our practicum, and the faculty just hope that the site is good enough to teach the field site experience.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting because now being on the other side of that and having a master's um, internship program, I feel this urgency to, and this need to fragilize the students, you know, it's like, Oh, well, we'll make sure we screen out all of these things. I mean, part of that is the distance, right? Because they're providing a lot of services via telehealth. And I'm not right there when they're doing it, not even in the building, right? So there's definitely a liability piece and a concern for appropriate care. Uh, But I also just don't feel like there's really any support. There's not really adequate preparation for these students to be working with folks who are actively suicidal or who, you know, are having severe symptoms.
1: That's twofold. On the one hand, students are prepared. Mm-hmm. And I tried to remind them, you are prepared to do this. On the other hand, you're right. There are a lot of specific areas of mental health that are not being focused on enough in the coursework. Part of that, we could probably blame KCREP and other accrediting bodies who determine what the minimum requirements are for every program. When you've got minimum requirements, it doesn't leave a whole lot of flexibility to add in other pieces. And also, for example, talking about suicide, just generally speaking from beginning to end, thoughts of suicide, suicide attempts, and survivors of suicide loss. KCREP has like a couple of lines about what a program needs to include about that. Mm
0: -hmm. There's not
1: near enough information about that. And in Dana's world, we would have an entire course on just how to work with folks regarding suicide. So on the one hand, the students are ready. They are, you know, I heard a student say something to the effect of my supervisor said, I wasn't ready to deal with this client because blah, 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 blah. And the the reasoning, the blah, 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 blah part was what the client was going through. Nothing to do with the actual student. So I'm thinking, so essentially what you're saying is this client is experiencing this and the student, you're, you're indirectly saying the student's not prepared to deal with it. And I pushed back on that. And I'm like, what makes you unprepared to deal with that? You don't need to know EMDR to do trauma therapy. And honestly, with suicide, all you need to know is, are you having thoughts of suicide? That's it. You just need to get comfortable with that question.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting that um, talking about suicide assessment, I was um, doing this internal family systems training. Um, and it was Frank Anderson and someone asked the question of what if someone has a suicidal part and you're telling me I'm just supposed to support and accept the suicidal part and I'm not supposed to resource and I'm not really supposed to push back because that would be invalidating to the part. What do I do? And his response I think made everybody's hair go up on the back of their necks and immediately go check their liability policies because he was like, you do just accept the part, you know, you, you can ask some more questions, you can do some more assessment, but we're, we're not in the role of making those choices for people. We've been taught we need to be in that role because we're concerned for our own safety and our own well being and our own licenses. But I'm curious what you, this is, I mean, wow, really kind of went tangential here, but I'm curious what you think about that in terms of preserving autonomy when someone is presenting with suicidality.
1: We know that from research, a lot of research, going in and being involuntarily admitted actually creates more harm than good. We know that. And yet, that's the go-to solution that we think we need to do whenever a client says, I'm having thoughts of suicide. What happened to the listening piece? What happened to the meeting the client where they're at? All they said was they're having thoughts of suicide. You didn't ask, what are those thoughts like? You didn't ask any additional information. You just jumped right to, well, sorry, we're going to have to involuntarily admit you. Even the way we talk about suicide. So think about the phrase commit suicide. What we're really talking about is a law that was on the books a long, long time ago that said it was illegal to attempt or die from suicide. And if you did, your things would be taken away and you may be denied a funeral and your family may be punished as well. Now, there are still some common law that is related to that, um, here in the United States of America, there are several States that still have a common law related to that. Generally though, that's not going to be the case. So straight from saying committed suicide and saying died from suicide, just like we would with anybody else. And for suicide attempts, that's, that's it. That's the phrase. It's a suicide attempt. They attempted suicide We even the way we talk about suicide applies judgment to it. And when we apply judgment, it keeps us from being able to make the human connection to the person sitting in front of us. So that again, we're not being taught that in our programs. We've got really like one sheet Questions, if you're worried you don't remember the questions, we've got one sheet you can go through and it'll even tell you at the end, based on the answers, what the level of risk is. It doesn't tell you what to do with that, but at least gives you some sort of guidance. And that's why I say anybody, because I did, there's Safe Talk, there's Assist, there's QPR. Anyone can be trained in identifying the signs, potential signs of suicide. And asking the question and then getting that person to appropriate resources, which is not always being involuntarily admitted into a program.
0: What are some of your go to resources, uh, especially knowing that it sounds like I, I share the sentiment that the goal is really to avoid hospitalization, you know, if at all possible. And all the sequelae that are, you know, traumatic, getting thrown into a cop car, handcuffed, you know possibly being transferred a hundred miles away because there's not room in the local hospital. Um, What are some of your go-to approaches for minimizing that harm, uh, for keeping people out of that system, if at all possible?
1: Oh, what a great question. Counseling on access to lethal means. We know from decades of suicide research, which is nowhere where it needs to be, right? We have When I say decades, it's probably the last decade or two that we've really been doing any research on suicide and how to prevent it. The number one way is to decrease access to lethal means. It is really that simple because it goes from a thought to an action very quickly. And if we can change what happens in the middle, we're going to have less deaths less hospitalizations from the attempts. A thought in and of itself is not a danger. Right. It's acting on the thought. So if you can take counseling on access to lethal means, it will change the way that you approach suicide intervention. You start to not only ask questions about the thoughts of suicide, like what do they look like? How intense are they? you start to ask, okay, do you have access to the lethal means that you just mentioned? You do. How can we make your space safer? Who can we get involved to help you make your space safer? That's the game changer. It's not locking people up who then turn around after being traumatized, go home to the very same environment they came from. It's changing the environment they're in in the moment and working with them to create a safer space for them to have those experiences.
0: I think that's so critical to name the training around suicide intervention, or maybe it's just the natural new counselor response to suicide intervention, I feel like is to focus so heavily on the thoughts. Uh, you know, just like you say, how how intense are they? how how often are you having them? what what is the content of the thought itself? So to name that the actual risk is around the means, you know is I think just such a simple but potentially revolutionary shift in how we address suicide intervention. It, it brings to mind too how little training counselors get. In managing their own discomfort, you know, so a lot of times the when I see a supervisee is really struggling with a potentially suicidal client, what it seems what seems to be really at the heart of it is that the counselor is so uncomfortable with feelings of hopelessness and can't touch into that for themselves that any sign of hopelessness in a client feels really threatening. And so they're in fight or flight so I'm curious how you, uh, especially in your teaching role and in your supervisory role, uh, are there ways that you sort of help to orient counselors in training, uh, help help them just with distress tolerance around sitting with a client who's yeah, in, in a state of intense suffering?
1: I give them stories to read about people who have thoughts of suicide and what their experiences have been in the mental health system when they've expressed those thoughts of suicide. Some of the stories talk about Needing support, but not being able to get it because, as you mentioned earlier, maybe they're not at the level that is needed to access that particular type of support. Mm -hmm. And also the drawbacks and effects that going through that system can be for someone with thoughts of suicide. So I give them some real life examples to read through and consider. Um, We have discussions in class about it, but also just talking about how simple it is to connect with the person and some alternative ways of working with the person like counseling on access to lethal means, as well as CAMS, the collaborative uh, management, uh, a collaborative approach to managing suicidality. Again, bringing in the human connection. We're no longer the know-it-all expert who's going to tell you how to fix Your problems, we're going to sit with you and work through this stuff with you. And it works exceptionally well. You remove the access to lethal means and then you sit and actually work with the person. We do that with any other concern that they might bring to us. Why not this? And that comes back to what we are indirectly told about our liability and the risk we take with working with clients with thoughts of suicide we essentially aren't giving the client any like ability kind of like the trainer said to make their own decisions because, you know, they're going to make their own decisions regardless of what happens during that session.
0: That was something that um, Frankie Anderson mentioned. He said that, you know, if you're uh, struggling with protecting someone from completing suicide then that's one of your parts that is potentially in the way. You know, you've got a part that is fearful uh, from a self-protective standpoint, you know, that just that sort of nebulous, someone's going to sue me if this client completes suicide. Um and I think to to really name that out loud as that being probably one of the primary motivators for a poor suicide intervention, like a very directive, aggressive suicide intervention. I think that's really important for counselors to be aware of, you know, that it may be a pretty self-absorbed way of going about things.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. It's you're protecting yourself. You're not actually protecting the client. Safety contracts don't work. Safety plans work as long as the person remembers to use them. But again, safety contracts, those can diminish the relationship because you take out the human connection. You say, "My covering my ass is more important than me actually helping you help yourself. And the client knows that.
0: Well, last question, um, because I feel like you are just a really great example of... I mean, one, just living in your values, my gosh, but also of um, really melding uh, a lot of these hats that we might wear as providers, you know, as educator, um, as, you know, peer, someone in in the world of mental health as a consumer as well, but also as an advocate. And I think that's something, too, that I know I've made a lot of complaints about counseling training programs today uh, and will likely continue to do so. Um but I feel like counseling programs really fall short on helping people learn how to be good advocates. So I'm curious what, what recommendations might you have for counselors who really do want to take on an activist role, an advocacy role? What are some ways that they might do that, particularly for folks with severe and persistent mental illness or suicidality?
1: Get involved in your local organizations like NAMI, like AFSP, You've got Mental Health America, which I've also seen as like Mental Health Academy, I think. Um, You've got local organizations that are doing grassroots work. See how you can support them and learn from them. If you start there, advocacy opportunities will just come to you. That has been my experience as a person with lived experience having lost someone to suicide having lived experience of loved ones with severe and persistent mental illness, and then myself getting involved in those organizations and just saying, hey, I'm here. How can I help? And then you're going to find where those doors open and where you best fit.
0: I think that's such great direction. I I think for me, one of the barriers has always been feeling like I have to just sort of within a silo, figure out how to advocate and which senator to write to. And I mean, what you're saying is that you you don't have to recreate the wheel. There are people and groups already doing it and you can be a support to them.
1: Mm-hmm. And it can be as simple as they send you an email every time that there is some important policy coming up and you click the link, you put in your information, you maybe add your personal experience or not, and you send it off. And let me tell you, that stuff does make a difference. It feels really simple and almost silly. Like, why am I clicking these buttons and sending it off? When we've got our representatives receiving hundreds of these emails, it starts to open their eyes. If you want to go the next step, you can. There are many advocacy days where you can go to Washington, D.C. I've done that. You can go to your state capitol. You can reach out uh, individually to whomever your particular representatives are and our senators are. But again, you don't have to create it yourself. Often there are folks out there creating it for you. All you have to do is fill it out and send it. And it can mean a lot.
0: Mm, I think that's such an important reminder, especially when I think feelings of powerlessness are just so prevalent when it comes to mental health advocacy, at least for me personally. Um, I mean, I'll still do it, but a lot of times it feels like just sort of sending out a wish and hope into space.
1: Well, and I think to that end, if you're able to show up to some of the local events, you've got often walks in different areas, you've got conferences, go show up, whether you show up as an attendee, you show up as a volunteer, maybe you take a leadership role, whatever it is, whatever you're able to do it's going to get you in those places to support folks who are doing the advocacy work and give you opportunities to join them if you want to. Um, I think we do get, we get, I don't know. I'm sure everyone's like, we get so many emails with opportunities for advocacy and there's this policy and that policy. And yes, clicking those buttons is great. If you go meet the people who are doing the work in your area, That's where you really start to learn and find opportunities for where you fit into that greater advocacy sphere. And if you don't have the time, the mental capacity to do that, can you donate a few dollars here or there? Can you maybe donate something in kind? You can donate your time. You can donate like a raffle item. There's a lot of ways to get involved And you can be creative. You just have to start reaching out first.
0: Well, Dana, it has just been such a pleasure. I think we have covered so much ground um, on some topics that are super important to me. So I'm very grateful for your time and your willingness to be real about real things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to be here, too, because I think this is a conversation we're having on a smaller scale, maybe even... Like internally with ourselves, how do I show up as a human? And I hope that this spreads into the professional work that we're all doing because we are all leaders in some way and we are affecting our field in some way. And this is our opportunity to make it a more human and just authentic connection with those that we're helping.
0: Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.priestman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.
1: I hear that cry.